Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Daniel chapter 2. As we continue on, we look at Act 2 of chapter 2 together. We left off, of course, at the end of Act 1. So we'll be picking up in the middle of a chapter. So it does seem appropriate to give at least a very brief recap. You'll recall Daniel and his buddies have graduated with honors from there at Babylon. You and stand before the king as a result, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that really, really shakes him up. And so he is trying to get at what the dream means, what the significance of the dream is. And so in this, this, he's having insomnia, he's anxious. He calls all the people in who could possibly tell him what the dream is and what it means. And then he gets even people who might have solutions, depending what the dream meant. As it turned out, no one could interpret the dream. And why the reason no one could interpret the dream is because he would not tell them the contents of the dream to interpret it. He wanted the content of the dream and the interpretation. And they say, Nebuchadnezzar, what you're asking is unreasonable. Only someone like the gods could do that, and that's not us. And so he was angry, furious. He commands that all of them be killed. Kill them all. Kill all the wise men of Babylon, and that included Daniel and his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel goes back to his home after speaking with Ariok, the captain of the guard, discerning what's going on here, and he asks them to pray for mercy considering this mystery. And then in a vision of the night, God reveals the mystery to Daniel who books a slot on the king's calendar, as it were. And the captain of the guard rushes him in there and says, I found found somebody. One of those exiles from Judah who can make known to the king the interpretation. And Daniel says to him in verse 27, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. That's where he left off last time. And so pick up with me. Follow along as I read in verse, starting in verse 31. Daniel says this, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone that was cut out by no human hand, uh, and it struck the image on its, uh, on its feet, of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now, 
we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the furnace of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw with the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, or they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Before walking through this text together, um, I want to provide what I would regularly just utilize without teasing it out. The preaching task is not like the, the one who brings out all the pots and pans and tools. It's more like the server who brings it out hot and fresh. for the, the But occasionally you got to show people the, the, the tools and the pots and pans. Um, and in this particular case, uh, we are looking at apocalyptic or visionary prophecy. And so I think it would be prudent to provide a an interpretive framework, an interpretive hermeneutical paradigm here um, for the book of Daniel, but largely because the book of Daniel includes this visionary and apocalyptic prophetic prophecy. This is slightly different than regular prophecy. It's often characterized by a distinct set of elements that set it apart from just any old prophecy. For example, highly graphic and even bizarre imagery, the periodization of world history, uh, an emphasis on God's sovereignty, uh, the use of angels, God's ultimate victory over evil. That sounds If that sounds a lot like the book of Daniel, it's because it has a lot of this apocalyptic prophetic prophecy. You think of probably the book of Revelation, some of Zechariah, uh, a couple other places where th th that could be described like this. How then should we approach understanding this kind of prophecy? 
And what I want to suggest is a threefold hermeneutical paradigm or an interpretive paradigm. Three, kind of three layers. The first is the visionary layer, the visionary level. And that is simply what is seen. What is seen in the vision? In this case, we, he clearly tells us what he saw. That's it. It's as superficial, but nevertheless quite important as it gets. What was seen in the vision? Number one. The second is the symbolic level. And that is uh, what is symbolized by what is seen. What is symbolized by what is seen? I see X in the vision. X meaning whatever it is. X symbolizes thus and such. That's the symbolic level. And then finally, the referential level. The referential level. This is what the prophecy refers to or picks out in the course of history. This is what concrete historical referent is being discussed here. And as I will try to illustrate as, I, as opportunity presents itself, failing to make these distinctions as, can run you into problems, and it can do so fairly quickly, in terms of how these particular kinds of prophecies are going to be fulfilled, which is why I think it's justified to take the time to tease this out so you understand this. For example, going directly from the visionary level, what is seen down to the referential level will often do one of two things, okay? Going from the visionary level to some concrete referent will often do one of two things. First, it will make it impossible for a prophecy to have multiple or prototypical fulfillments because it will be understood to refer to one concrete historical wooden thing because it's not gone through the symbolic level that could be potentially referring to multiple things that are an accurate expression of the symbolism. You go directly from the visionary level to the referential, concrete, historical thing that it's talking about. You preclude the kind of already not yet kind of fulfillments. You conclude uh, prototypical multiple fulfillments. Or, on the other hand, you will strangle the apocalyptic pro prophetic literature with a kind of literalism that has no chance of actually referring to uh, what the passage is discussing. No chance of actually referring to those things at the referential level. So having laid that out, let's walk through this text together and, and what do we see? What do we see? First, we see the image. This is a depiction here of the image. When you think, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that an image stood before him. When you hear image here, don't think picture. Think image like, do not make unto me any graven images. Think of a car, something carved, and it's something carved that was standing before Daniel appropriately understood to be something like a statue or very, very close to it. Okay, I won't bicker if that's a statue. No, it's, it's a model. It's a, I don't know what it is. It's, it's something like this, okay? And it was standing before him, the shape of a, a man, rightly understood to be a statue. He says it had a head of gold, verse 32. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and uh, partly clay. I have to say, to be so terrified, the actual vision must have been much more terrifying than this. Okay? But nevertheless, it is what it is. The best I could uh, come up with as I drew that myself in my study. No, no, no. Regrettably, I cannot do that. 
So this, this statue, this image is standing before Nebuchadnezzar in the dream, and then something happens. Statue, and then something happens. The stone. Verse 34, and as, as you looked, that is, as you looked at the statue, a stone was cut out by no human hand, which at this point in the passage does not really make a lot of sense. We don't know what that means yet. You figure it out later. But it's kind of like, oh yeah, we'll just kind of read on, I guess, right? There was a stone cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. We know this was cut out. It wasn't a human hand that would have carved the image, okay? Presumably a divine hand cut this out, and it strikes the the feet, the clay-iron mixture, and it shatters it. But we read further that it's not just the feet that shatter, it, 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 hits, it hits the feet, and it shatters the feet, but then the whole thing gets shattered. The whole thing gets shattered. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces. And so we don't know exactly what this looked like. Uh, uh, was it that the, the, in the vision, the, the stone hits the feet, and then because you got, the, the, the statue kind of got foot, foot sweeped, and then he kind of fell over and shattered? Was it just that it hit it so hard that there was like aftershock and we're not really entirely sure, but the rock strikes the bottom part of the statue, the clay and the iron, such that the whole statue is reduced to dust. The statue meets a complete demise. It's reduced so small that wind can blow the pieces Away, that's what it says, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. That is utter annihilation, is what that is. Utter annihilation. But we find then that this stone exhibits some odd behavior of its own, doesn't it? The stone that caused the, the, the smashing itself becomes a huge mountain, and it becomes a mountain that actually fills the entire earth. That is, Daniel says in verse 36, the dream. This was the dream. Now, by the way, I love that Daniel, Daniel didn't have that second where he paused. He was like, was, that, was I right? Like, was that it? Like, can I go to step two? No, because, he, because there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And the God of heaven who reveals mysteries has already, already revealed this to Daniel. Even if the king had said, oh, no, that was not it, Daniel would be like, you're lying. Daniel didn't have to ask for confirmation. So he doesn't. He just keeps going. He keeps going to the interpretation. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. I've given you the content that you wouldn't give anyone else. That's been revealed to me. Now I've revealed it to you. And now we will tell you the interpretation. And Daniel gives us what I would suggest is an interpretation down to the symbolic level for most of the vision and all the way down to the referential level for the first element. I think I'll show you how that works here. You, O king, verse 37, the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. 
And into his hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. This is the gold part. You are the head of gold. So notice in the first, the first section here of the interpretation, visionary level, head of gold. Symbolic level, as, we'll continue, as we see here, but we'll continue to see, extremely illustrious, extremely prestigious, extremely glorious. It's what it symbolizes. What does it refer to? What does that refer to? It refers to Nebuchadnezzar, particularly as the Nebuchadnezzar, not just as a, some kind of private citizen, but particularly Nebuchadnezzar as the king of Babylon. He says, you are the head of, of gold. You are the head of gold as you are the head of this kingdom. That's what he says. So I think right there you get all three levels. The visionary, the symbolic, and the referential level. You are the head of gold. Uh, and the other elements in this vision, I'm going to suggest that Daniel only gives us the interpretation down to the symbolic level. Not the referential level. I think you will notice that as we go through it. You're not going to see Daniel pointing out any concrete historical referent like he does right there. That's important. That's important. The second part of the interpretation is extremely brief. And another, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. So that's the silver. That's the silver from the, uh, uh, from the statue there. And that's all, that, that's all the commentary that one gets. An inferior silver, not as illustrious as gold. And there shall be a third kingdom... After that, it says, and that kingdom shall be of bronze, still inferior, less illustrious than, than silver, bronze, but shall rule over all the earth. And then finally it says there's going to be a fourth kingdom. A fourth kingdom strong as iron, okay? The least illustrious out of all of them, but now we've now when once we get to the bottom and it tells us this strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things except the stone. By the way, except the stone. As we go down on this statue, we go from the most illustrious to the least illustrious. But every almost every commentator looking at Daniel's interpretation here. And it's certainly almost common knowledge. While we go from the, the most illustrious to the least illustrious, we also go from the softest, most malleable, weakest to the, to the firmest and the strongest. Okay, So as we go down in glory, you might say, in one sense, we go up in strength. And we're not making that up. We get that from the text itself. There should be a four kingdom strong as iron. It's contrasted with the other ones because of how strong it is, because it's stronger than all of them. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And then in verses 41 through 43, we actually aren't told about a, maybe you might say just one unified kingdom at all. You might say, well, here's the fifth kingdom represented by the toes and feet. And it's, uh, you could say that. You could say it's a divided kingdom, but it's, it's not a unified kingdom. It says, as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. It shall be divided. Some of the firmness of iron in it uh, will, will be in it, just as you saw some iron mixed with the soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. 
And as you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. It'll be blended slash divided, you might say. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Of course, even on the vision's own imagery, we could probably discern that. People listening to this would not have thought, oh yeah, you can just mix a little iron and clay together and it'll all just sit there in a coherent whole. No, it just that's simply not how it works. And then in verse 44, God explicitly enters into the picture. Verse 44, God explicitly enters into the, to the picture while He has been implicitly present behind these kingdoms. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain. So wait, there it was. Remember in the first part, the stone cut by no... Was it where? Was it cut out of the statue? Was it cut out of the ground? No, it's not, it's not till here that we actually learn something about the content of the dream that we might have expected to see in the first part. What happened was the stone was cut out of a mountain, and that's the stone in the language of the, in the imagery of the vision that becomes a mountain. You see that? It's cut from a mountain, it becomes a mountain. Or you might say it's a part of a mountain that goes back into being a full mountain, something like that. The seed of a mountain, perhaps. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. This kingdom, all, unlike all the other ones that come before it, shall never be destroyed. It shall never be given over to another people, and it shall last forever. That's what Daniel says. That is the progression. That is what Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar about the latter days. What is coming after Nebuchadnezzar. Let me point out a few things about Daniel's interpretation of the vision here. Two or three things. First, I mentioned that outside that first element, the head of gold, that Daniel's interpretation of the dream takes us from the visionary level to the symbolic level. But notice that Daniel does not mention what kingdoms in particular, any of the metals of, or the metal clay feet mixture, or even, frankly, the stone, what it refers to in history. In the first example, we get concrete. Visionary, what it symbolizes, Nebuchadnezzar the man, concrete historical reference. In the other cases, that's not what we get. We get that these things symbolize kingdoms. They symbolize kingdoms without saying which particular kingdoms in the course of human history they actually refer to. Second, notice the phrase, in the days of those kings, verse 44. This is often taken to be a reference to ten kings who will rule before the kingdom of God is set up. And those of you who grew up in um, yeah, a different church background, 
probably more familiar with, with this than people who grew up in a church background more similar to our own here. But why is that? Why would that possibly refer to ten kings that have to rule before the kingdom of God? Well, because feet have ten toes, of course. And there were feet and there were toes. How many toes do you have? Well, you probably have ten. And so therefore, this, this image probably had ten. And so therefore, the toes are, are what they really are, are they are pointing out ten kings that come before the kingdom of God. And it's the kingdom of God that smashes the ten kings. Well, I, I have to say that this, one of the reasons I put forward the threefold interpretive strategy here was to guard us from stuff like that. Okay, Daniel's interpretation explicitly tells us that the feet will represent a blended, divided kingdom. Okay, that's what the, that's what it symbolizes. That is the symbolism of the the whole feet. That's what the whole feet symbolize. It's not like the feet up to the toes symbolize that. And there's like a next progressed level that he doesn't say. Uh, it doesn't say anything about. It's 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 just this extrapolated symbolism. That the only person who is going to find that there is someone who is trying to find symbolism in the vision where Daniel doesn't say it's there. And that's the case, even though probably it did have ten toes. I mean, that's, it's not like it didn't have ten toes. I'm not saying that's not, that it didn't. I'm just saying that that's not necessarily part of the symbolism. If you go down this path, playing the, oh, these are the toes, talking about things that aren't even mentioned, and then importing symbolism, and then going to historical reference from there, you will be... In the visionary genre, you will be entering into an interpretive free-for-all. You will be entering into an interpretive free-for-all. In fact, we might as well ask, with regards to the third kingdom, you know, surely the statue had two thighs, right? Probably two kings. Oh, wait a second. The middle is also bronze with the thighs, but only everyone only has one middle. It's riddled with contradiction. What should we do? What, what we should do is we should understand the world of the symbols the way they are in the vision and then understand the images the way they are. The, the, we move from the visionary to the symbolic level given how Daniel has told us to do so instead of trying to um, basically make it up. That, that's one way to say it, basically making it up. Also notice this, in the world of the vision and its interpretation, the rock that strikes the statue destroys the whole thing simultaneously, I mean simultaneously, hits the feet first, and, but nevertheless the whole statue is fully present at the same time. Whereas in the interpretation, these refer to subsequent kingdoms. Okay, And so the person who isn't understanding this properly uh, is going to ask, how can that be? Isn't this a huge problem? I mean, how does that line up with Daniel's own interpretation? In the, in the vision, they're all together at the same time, and the, and the stone strikes the feet, and the whole thing disintegrates. But in the run of history, Daniel has said, uh, these are subsequent kingdoms. And so when the, when the rock comes at, there at the end and it hits the, the, the feet, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is gone. So how is it destroying that? You see, the, you see how you, you get tripped up there. What I would suggest is that while we are getting a picture of the latter days, that is to say those after Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, because of how the visions and symbols are put together, the final kingdom that triumphs over all of them and crushes everything is primarily to be understood 
in light of the final kingdom's splendor, strength, and origin, splendor, strength, and origin, compared to the whole of what has come before it. Compared to the whole of what has come before it. And, and that which all the other kingdoms, in one sense, share. They are unified in a sense. They're unified in a sense, um, and the stone does not come from the statue. They are distinct things. Every kingdom that comes before the stone and the kingdom set up by it are led by mere mortals. They're all temporary. They're all of human origin. And, e and all of them are comparatively weak. And thus, they can be cast in the same mold, as it were. The kingdom that comes with the shattering stone, by contrast, is not of human origins, has no end to its days, is stronger than anything that has come before it. So if you carefully observe the, the, and distinguish the visionary from the symbolic levels without trying to do all of the resolution at the, what does this pick out in history, I think the challenge largely disappears. The kings in those days are the kings of the kingdoms represented by the statue that the stone crushes. It doesn't refer to ten, it's not ten toe kings of the Roman Empire or something like that. It is the kings referred to in this that, that lead uh, these kingdoms that the stone crushes. The final thing I'll mention is this. What about the referential level? You know, Daniel doesn't say anything about it. But you say, Tyler, hasn't history been mercifully clear, at least on this one? Hasn't it given us a fairly straightforward path? I mean, history here has actually come out in the wash fairly clearly. Um, do I think something like this, which is by far, I would say, the majority view, is plausible in terms of what physical reference, what concrete reference uh, these kingdoms refer to? I would say yes, I think it's plausible. Quite plausible in light of things that happen in history and special revelation after Daniel. And yet, precisely understanding them at the referential level is just not part of Daniel's burden. So we are free. We are free to make judgments here. We are free to hold conclusions. But it was very clearly not Daniel's primary burden here to help us spell out which particular kingdoms he had in mind. One commentator says it better than I ever could, so I just decided to put a block quote right in the manuscript. He says this, At this point, the temptation is to start inquiring about the identity of the four kingdoms in the vision. If the first kingdom is Babylon, which it is, can we also identify the other three? Some people argue that the four kingdoms are Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece, while others say that they are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. If the last king is Rome, then who are the ten toes? It doesn't take long before we find our heads spinning with the variety of interpretations offered, all of which go far beyond the interpretation and application that Daniel himself gave here. It is important to notice, however, that the passage itself gives us virtually no data about the specifics of any of these kingdoms because it intends to give a philosophy of history rather than a precise analysis of history ahead of time. It is more concerned about what the future holds than when it will come to pass. And I would suggest that that's because what's more important than the precise historical reference of each kingdom in the statue and each element is their unity. The unity of those elements in light of their commonalities and inferiority 
contrasted with this foreign smashing stone and the kingdom that accompanies it. That is the main point. That is the climax of the vision, the smashing stone that sets up the kingdom cut out from a mountain by no human hand. So if I had to take my guess about the historical reference in the kingdoms, uh, it would likely be with this kind of breakdown. Certainly the kingdom of God comes somewhere in the Roman period. Okay? It, uh, but, but nevertheless, we don't have to know that in order to grasp the significance of the mystery Daniel has revealed. And so concludes Daniel's interpretation. And that remains the case even if we wish he would have revealed more. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Verse 46, he, he fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. In his pagan ignorance, hey, he does his best, but this is enough to make any Jew blush or be horrified or maybe both. I mean, he's basically basically worshiping Daniel. He's basically worshiping Daniel. At least, though, he gets the part about Daniel's God right in verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men. So actually, he bestows upon the, he keeps his end of the bargain. Remember the impossible terms that he offered? You can't tell me the dream and its interpretation. There is one sentence for you. But if you can, I will bestow on you high honor. I will give you a ton of stuff. I will give you prestige. And that is exactly what he gives Daniel. Think of Joseph in his exaltation here. This is something like that. In fact, it would be difficult to believe a Jew could be listening to this and say, hmm, boy taken away by foreigners to a foreign land where he ends up being second to the king. No, that doesn't sound familiar. Doesn't sound familiar at all. No, I think it's very unlikely. This has precedent in the history of redemption. And the last thing we read is Daniel doing his friends a solid here. All right, he does them a solid while reserving him for himself a position that uh, appears to be a little bit different than that was initially assigned to him. Daniel made a request of the king. Okay, so he made him ruler over the whole province, but then Daniel makes a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel himself remained in the king's court. So what he did is, instead of doing that himself, he said, hey, can, can my three friends here, fellow wise men, can they be over the province while I, well, they under me kind of thing? I'll be there, they'll be my direct reports, okay? I'll be their supervisor. They can do that, but I will stay in the king's court. And that's very important for what comes next. Very important for what comes next, because in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel is breathtakingly absent. And it is a result of him putting his buddies in the position that he did that they end up, not Daniel, in the fiery furnace. And we'll see that this business of statues has not gone away. In fact, one is, one is coming down the pipe fairly quickly for a man who just had a dream about a statue. How will they fare in these roles? 
in their promotion here. Will Nebuchadnezzar have more sympathy with them moving forward? I mean, how, how will Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgement of God as the revealer of mysteries affect the way he rules his kingdom? We have to, have to come back next, next week to hear the next part of the story. Actually, I have to come back in about three weeks, as it turns out. I'll be in Mexico. But you still have to come back hear the next part of the story. I knew I wasn't going to have very much time for application because I wanted to be careful in how I walked through that. But let me say that the, the primary purpose of this vision is to emphasize this, this kingdom, the kingdom of God. In the further scope of Revelation, we learn that the kingdom spoken of comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He claimed to be the Son of God, ushering in the kingdom as the long-awaited Messiah. We learn that the kingdom comes in two phases, much like how this rock hits the statue. It comes in one phase. It doesn't seem particularly impressive, but it has devastating consequences. But in the latter phase, it ends up filling the whole earth, sometimes called the already element and the not yet element. And in contrast to anything that's come before it, we learn four things about the kingdom of God. Right here in Daniel chapter 2, I'll say, but in much higher resolution in the pages of the New Testament. What are those four things, briefly here? One is that the kingdom of God is supernatural. Supernatural. From start to finish, like the stone cut by no human hand, the kingdom of God has divine origins and a divine ruler. And its current expression is not a kingdom that can be seen. Understood as something like the rule of God over his people. Certainly you and I can be seen as the citizens of the kingdom. But the rule and reign of God as he brings in the kingdom cannot be seen. But make no mistake about it, it is no less real on that account. And if anything is going to be clear in the book of Daniel as we move on, it is that the fact that this kingdom is not seen and the fact that we can't see certain things does not mean that there are not incredible things going on. In this kingdom, there's a war being waged against this kingdom. We're going to find that out. There's a war being waged against this kingdom. And our battle is not against flesh and blood here. There are angels involved. In this kingdom, casualties are eternal. And the glory of the conquerors surpasses anything anyone has ever known. It is a kingdom led by a perfectly righteous monarch who guarantees justice. And the exhortation is to strive to enter that kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is supernatural. Second, the kingdom is permanent. In contrast to the kingdoms of this world, all of which will eventually fall. Of course, the ones that are existing. Christ returns to crush them in a sense. The kingdom of God is the final indestructible kingdom in history. It is the only kingdom that lasts forever and therefore the only kingdom that has final significance. Other kingdoms have significance. The kingdom of God is, because it lasts forever, is the only one that has final significance, which causes us to ask ourselves a question. 
Do we find ourselves wrapped up in, overly affected by, even pursuing reform in a kingdom that despite the good that we can and should do, simply will not last? It's not that we aren't concerned about any other kingdom. Is that, is that where our hope is? Is that where our trust is? Is that where our emotions constantly rest? Daniel himself participates in this kingdom that will pass away. He, in fact, he's influential in it. But he, he, you can tell that that's not where his eyes are set. It's not where his trust is. It's not where his hope is. We have the benefit of being on the other side of this prophecy if the kingdom of God has already broken into things. How will we then live for a kingdom that will never pass away? Second, the kingdom of God is permanent. Third, the kingdom of God is overwhelming. Notice that the kingdom of God is only currently a kingdom that's not of this world. Currently. Won't be that way forever, though. You heard Ava read Revelation 11.15. The kingdom of the world has become, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. There will be a wedding, so to speak, of heaven and earth. The kingdom that Christ brings will overwhelm the cosmos as it is continued to break in. Remember, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are defensive instrument, not an offensive instrument. The gates will not resist the charging, the battering down of the kingdom of God. The kingdom will win. The stone that smashes to pieces the kingdom will win. And a mountain will be established so much so that at one point, the kingdom of God will fill the whole earth. It will be a new heavens and a new earth when the dust settles, so to speak. And because of that, there will only be one meaningful way, ultimately. Not that there aren't other ways. There will be only be one ultimate, final way to be on the right side of history. And that will be being a citizen of this kingdom, entered into by repentance and faith on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Finally, the kingdom spoken of here in Daniel is paradoxical. I, just don't, I don't mean it's odd. I don't mean it's supernatural. I quite literally mean it seems backwards on many accounts. Those who humble themselves are the ones who are exalted. Those who are great or those whose trust and faith is unwavering as a child. It's a kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. It's a kingdom where power is made perfect through weakness. It's a kingdom brought in by a king who was publicly executed. A kingdom that rarely has citizens who have glory by the world's standards. In other words, the strongest, most unshakable, permanent, all-encompassing, most glorious kingdom in history, the kingdom of God, is nothing like we would expect. For now. For now. But as I've said many times, greatness is coming. Not figurative greatness, real greatness, real glory. Real glory is coming for believers in a way that makes God 
that glorifies God, not that subtracts from it. Glory is coming, but the kingdom of God is paradoxical. Paradoxical, excuse me. And so, will we seek not only to enter the kingdom, but also understand the contours, the dynamics of the kingdom under the lordship of Jesus Christ and live in that kingdom as citizens worthy of the citizenship that we have been graciously granted? Are we living as people who have gotten out of a line going to hell and into a line going to heaven? Or are we living as citizens of a kingdom that will never pass away with a king who gave his life for you and I? Two very different ways to think about moving forward in the Christian life. Let's pray. God, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. No kingdom can stand against you. We, re- we are refreshed by how enormously powerful and sovereign your plans are for us, for your kingdom. Lord, we pray that we would walk worthy of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name.